If the song we have just sung is not familiar to you, I just want to encourage you to consider holding on to this bulletin throughout the week and uh, meditate on the words we have just sung together. Even if you don't know the melody, just thinking through uh, the words of the song come from Psalm 90. And it's such an appropriate uh, song, hymn, to meditate on, particularly as we think about a new year. When uh, architects design a big complex, it is common for them to create small-scale models so that the clients would be able to envision what their plans that they have drafted, what they will look like in a small scale, in a miniature scale. Now, architects have the ability to visualize uh, plans and imagine how plans drawn on a piece of paper would actually look like in space. But for the rest of us who are not architects, we have a hard time imagining what that looks like. So they often create these miniature scales so that clients would envision, would see, would, would be able to imagine what those plans will look like. Uh, what does that have to do with Second Samuel chapter 8? We're in a book of Scripture. We're getting back into our, our rhythm through 2 Samuel. And uh, in 2 Samuel 7, the chapter we have left off, uh, right before getting into some of the Christmas messages, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel was a place in the Bible where God laid out the plans of His coming kingdom. Where He revealed what he will do, what he will draft for years and ages to come. Uh, chapter 7 listed, listed various details of, of God's plans with his kingdom, a kingdom that he would bring to earth to be lived out, to becoming a reality through a king that God would, would establish forever on his throne. Now, if I were to use the metaphor of, of architecture, chapter 7 is like drafting the plans of the kingdom. Chapter 8 is like seeing a small-scale model of what the plan of God with his kingdom will be, and particularly how it will affect the citizens who will live under the reign of God's anointed king. So would you open God's word to Psalm, uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 8. I'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 18. Here is God's word for us, 2 Samuel chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadazer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river, river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram, 
brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Sadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, uh, was over the Kerithites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of this word for us? Let's pray. Father, you reveal to us the ways in which you have worked through the king that you have anointed. Father, as we are standing before this passage, we ask that you would speak to our own hearts in a way that our hearts will be built up, encouraged, edified, in a way that Christ would be exalted in this passage, through this revelation, in our own hearts. We ask that the Holy Spirit would work to draw our hearts to you in confidence that you are the God who brings your reign over your people. We pray this in the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 8 is a bit of a strange text. As I was looking at it a few weeks ago and realizing that we would be finishing off the year with this text, I was wondering, okay, I'm sure the Lord will help me understand what this is supposed to do and be. I was just glancing at it early on, just getting an initial impression. To our modern ears, this feels a little bit disconnected from our daily lives. What are we to do with a text that lists so many battles and victories? But if you lived in ancient times, particularly in Israel around 1000 BC and earlier, there's always the threat of war, of invasion from neighboring countries, neighboring enemies. We in the U.S., even when as a nation we declare war against other nations of the world, uh, those, those enemies are far away. We don't have enemies nearby. We, we have a unique privileged position as a country. So for us Americans, thinking we are at war with our neighbors is a very foreign concept. We might be at war with other nations around the world, across the world, but there's oceans between us. It's very different. But imagine if you are an, an Israelite, 1000 BC, and just two hours away, by walk, the enemy could be launching attack against you. And you live in a, in a life, in a, in a season, in an in a era where the, the, the threat of attack is just always, always there. The, the hope for stability, the hope for safety, where and when it's often short-lived, uh, that hope stirs up in a deeper way than we readers here in America might, might appreciate or understand. The hope for enemies to be driven away, to be subdued, is a hope that you would have. And with such a, such a sensitivity... If you put yourself in the shoes of those living in ancient times, reading such a list of victories uh, would get you to be impressed and stir you to inquire, who is this king who is so victorious? Uh, how did he, what was he able to do to, to, to build up such a wide influence, 
What was his secret to such a wide success, especially since he grew up from being a shepherd boy, looking after sheep in a field? And, and also, what must have been like to, to live under such a king, under his reign, to be a part of his kingdom, when he subdued all his enemies? Now, this text speaks not only about how David won victories over enemies, but how David reigned over his people and what must have been like to be under his reign. The message this text gives us, even though it's a bit strange and, and far from our modern years, is that God's people are secure because God makes his king victorious. And he reigns justly over his people. God's people are secure because God makes his king victorious and he reigns justly over his people. Chapter 8 of Second Samuel has two major parts. Uh, the first part is in verses 1 through 14, where we see God making his king victorious. And then in the second part, the last part, the shorter part, is that God's king reigns justly over his people. This, this text is a bit strange also because it ends with this list of, of David's cabinet members. It's as, a, as if... As if the narrator is giving us a snapshot before his kingdom is actually at the end. It, it's giving a snapshot of what David's reign was like, a, a thumbnail. I call it a, a small-scale model of what it looks like for God to establish his reign through his anointed king. The first major truth, as we see in this picture of, of the stability of God's people under his anointed king. The first point we see in this picture is that God makes his king victorious. This first part of the, of the text, verses 1 through 14, is like a, if I can put another picture for you, it would be like a display of the trophies that one has gained and attained, accumulated, trophies of war, trophies that tell of major victories, the narrator tells us here of five major battles, five major, five major enemies that, that David subdued. And sandwiched between these stories of victories, we see some details that, are, that the narrator will bring out and then some spoil of war. Throughout this display of, of the summary of defeated enemies, the, the author of this text is driving home at least four lessons Four lessons from this display of trophies of war. Number one, the first lesson is that God is the one who gives the victories. God is the one who gives the victories. This is the most explicit lesson of these, of these victories. Uh, it's repeated twice. I wonder if you picked up on the phrase in verse 6 and then verse 14. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The lesson is no, no enemy was able to withstand David. No enemy was too strong for him. No alliance was able to defeat him, even when these enemies had superior weaponry like chariots and, and lots of horses. No enemy was able to keep this king from being victorious. Why? And the answer that the, and the lesson in this display is because God gave him the victory. It's not the amount of strength that David had. It's not the size of his military that he had. It's not the superiority of the weaponry that David had. It's not the fact that he had allies to help him out. If anything, the enemies are allying together against him. What chances, what was the secret that David had to be victorious in every one of these battles? The answer and the lesson that this text gives us is God. God gave him the victory. God fought for him. God was his strength. God was his shield. God was his strategy. 
Friends, this list of victories rightly identifies the ultimate cause of all of them. It's not David's wisdom or strength or power. It's the Lord. So as we think about even finishing off our year 2023 and look into a new year, and we look to the both joys and the challenges, things that we have experienced that have been helpful and comforting, but also looking at, at a new year, fears, anxieties. Perhaps our hopes are that what gave us anxiety and fear in this year would, would be subdued in the next year. What are, where are you looking at? What are you looking to? Look to God, who is our shield, our helper. He's been our helper in ages past. We can look to him in the new year. Lesson two in this list of, of trophies is that the list of victories that we see here tells us that God's covenant worked. God's covenant worked. It's significant that this passage that gives a snapshot of David's entire reign, uh, by the way, the battles mentioned here, some of them took place in the past, others will take place in the future. This is not a chronological arrangement here. This is more of a, let's take a panoramic picture of David's reign. That's why the cabinet members are mentioned here at the end of the chapter. And it's, it's, it's mentioned here as opposed to being mentioned at the end of the story of David's reign. It's mentioned here because of what happened in the previous chapter. What happened in the previous chapter? God made a covenant with David. God promised David to establish him, his house, because through his house, God would establish a kingdom over his people, a kingdom that will be established forever, that no enemy could defeat. Just listen to some of the promises from chapter 7 that God gave. Chapter 7, verse 11. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Earlier in verse 10 of chapter 7, God promised that Israel will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So as soon as chapter 7 is done, describing the plans of what God had, the covenant plans that God had to bring about his kingdom, the author takes a time to get out of his chronology moment and give us a snapshot of David's reign And he puts this collage of major victories that David has won. And the result of all this is to drive home the point, not only that God is the one who gave David the victories, but the second lesson in this collage of victories is the covenant God made with David worked. It is true. The result is that the kingdom that was under David's reign was now safe. From its enemies. Well, friends, it's not only the covenant that God made with David that began to be fulfilled and worked here, but actually the, the territorial details that were given about some of these victories, not only who they were against, but the territories, how far they, how far these victories went, also speaks about another covenant that is being fulfilled in this chapter. It's a covenant with Abraham. God promised Abraham back in Genesis 15 that God will give him and his offspring this land. And Moses reminded the people of Israel how far the promise went, how far the promise of the land extended. Just listen to Moses' words as he recounts a promise God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. In Deuteronomy 11, uh, Moses says to the Israelites before they entered into the promised land, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river 
the river Euphrates to the Western Sea, the Mediterranean. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. From the Euphrates River to the sea. These promises were never fulfilled until David. This chapter, chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, is the first time we hear that the promises made to Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, and Jacob, refreshed through Moses, refreshed again in Joshua 1, these promises now were fulfilled through this Davidic king. Well, friends, the covenant God made with his people worked. It happened. It was fulfilled. This is a place in the Old Testament that confirms that what God has been building up through the covenants, whether it's with Abraham, now with David, that God is able to accomplish it. So this list of victories tells a bigger story than merely, look how great David is. They actually tell the story, look how great God is. He brought these victories. He gave them to David. And he gave them the land that he promised centuries before. Lesson three from this list of victories. Is that not only are the enemies subdued and defeated. But the lesson three is that there is another way to respond to God's anointed king. Most of the kings in this list of victories um, are... Are, are ones who continued, had continued to fight against David, resisted him, thought that you could win and, and defeat him, but they couldn't. But tucked between these list of victories and defeats, there's another king, King Toy. Toy willingly offered his gifts, and he developed peaceful relationships with David. King Toy has done what Psalm 2 has taught the kings of the earth to do. To kiss the king. To embrace him. To stop fighting him. To stop fighting against him and his God. But to embrace him. The inclusion of the story of King Toy here in this list shows us that there is a better way of relating to God's anointed king instead of continuing to resist him and to fight against him and to think that you can win against him, this list shows that no, no king will be able to resist him forever. And yet, the kings who laid down the arms, the, those who actually seek to develop peaceful relationships with God's anointed king, for them it will be well. Lesson four. The spoil of war. Uh, there, there was much spoil of war developed and uh, brought about. King David did not merely defeat these enemies and disarmed their powers and threat over God's people, but he brought their wealth. But it's amazing what David did with the wealth he accumulated through the spoil of war. Notice verses 11 and 12. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. David accumulated lots and lots of wealth from these nations, but he did not keep it for himself. He devoted it to the Lord. He devoted it to the one who actually is owner of it all. It belonged to the Lord in the first place, and David devoted it to the Lord. Friends, David shows us why he accumulated great amounts of wealth through these victories. This wealth did not become his master. He dedicated it to the Lord. Here's God's king. God's servant, uh, the one whom God raised up, and he is 
giving to the Lord what the Lord has given to him. Amazing lessons in these victories. We could look at, at the names of these, at these, uh, at these enemies. The Philistines were the constant threat against God's people. The Moabites, they were, they were long-time enemies against God's people. The Edomites, they were long-time enemies of God's people, constantly being hostile against God's people. Hadadezer, a big player in the land, so big that Toy was so happy with King David that, that he developed this, this peace relationship with David. Hadadezer was a, a big man, a big guy up north. If we were to put these names together on a map and their ter- ter- territories, these would be the enemies that surrounded Israel all around. All around. Well, friends, the lessons these victories tell us is that God is able to bring his people to a place of security and stability from all enemies. No matter how strong they are, no matter how close they are, no matter how long-term enemies they have been. Think of Moab and Edom. These were relatives of the patriarchs. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. These were, these were family enemies. Turn with me to Numbers 24. Remember the big prophecy that we often read and consider at Christmas. Numbers 24, the Moabites, this long, long-term family enemy. The, one of the king of the Moabites was so fed up with the Israelites that he called a, mass, uh, a prophet to come and curse them, Balaam. Three times, the king of Moab, Balak, asked Balaam to curse the Israelites because of the animosity that existed between the Moabites and the Israelites. And every time, Balaam cannot, did not curse them. Instead, he uttered, he uttered a blessing on them. In chapter 24, starting with verse 17, Balaam Bless the people of Israel in the presence of the king of Moab, who had commissioned him to curse them. Said these words, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth, Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. This prophecy had not been fulfilled until chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. When among the five enemies, you see Moab and Edom destroyed, dispossessed of their wealth. David putting garrisons in their land. These are military posts to continue to exert his authority and reign over these enemies because this is what God decreed it would happen. Oh, friends, for us Christians reading this text, the application is not to put ourselves in David's shoes but to put ourselves in the shoes of the people of Israel who are under David's reign. Just as their security and stability rested in what God did with their king, so also for us, our security and stability is tied to what God promised to do through his anointed king. For us, that king is Jesus. No wonder that when Jesus was born... There were wise kings who brought him gifts willingly. They had come to worship him. They had come to embrace 
the king that God had anointed. Jesus is our king. He is our security and stability. And our stability and security is bound to the victories that God has given King Jesus. For us, we have seen the much greater victories that God has given to Jesus, the ultimate Davidic king. God gave him victory over the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness to misuse God's word and rebel against God. Jesus did not buy into that temptation. He resisted it and overcame the devil in that battle in the wilderness. But perhaps the greatest battle of all is that Jesus Jesus went to battle against our very sinful nature and against the wages of our sin. He went to battle to take upon himself the wages of our rebellion against God. He went to battle by being willing to, to die because that is what the wages of death is. He died on a cross, crucified. And three days later, God gave him victory over death. We have a king who came to reign over the throne of David, over the kingdom that God promised, a king who has experienced God's victories in ways way greater than David had experienced. Conquering enemies way bigger than David had conquered. King Jesus conquered the enemy of our bondage to sin. King Jesus conquered the enemy of death itself. Friends, our security and our stability is not in our present victories but in the victories that God has given King Jesus already. What are the enemies that you feel are near to you? If we had time to talk, I'm sure that we could go around and share, if you would feel open, and I hope you would, share some of the struggles or fears, some of the battles that you've had, some of the areas that you feel anxious over, especially as you may be thinking about the new year. Some, it may be the fears of sickness, of losing health, losing your independence, losing life itself. For others, it may be the fear of losing a job, losing resources. For others, it may be the, the, the battle with depression, various forms of, of mental illness. For others, it's the battle with hopelessness, the battle with sin. I hope that's a battle for all of us. I hope all of us are, are aware of how we battle our sinful nature. Friends, I don't know what are the battles and the enemies and the threats that you feel are close to you. But the great news from passages like this, reading through an Old Testament list of victories, is that God is committed to give victories to the king he has anointed. And he has done it with David such that God's people were able to experience security and safety and stability under the reign of this king. We today have a much greater king that David merely pointed to. We have King Jesus. Friends, for us, we are still living in the, in the age when the battles are going on. Jesus has defeated the greatest of our enemies, but the, the, the outflow, the, 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 we are still in the age in which we are feeling the, the reality that the final culmination of all this is still a future reality, a future hope. Friends, consider believing and embracing the truth that if you are in Christ, no enemy is or will be too great to defeat your king. You may suffer. We may suffer. We may feel the, the threat of the enemies. But if you are in Christ, you are under his scepter. If you are in Christ, you are under his security. And no enemy will be too great to snatch you out. 
of the hand of protection and security that King Jesus is able to have on you and me. In his first coming, Jesus came as a savior for all who would repent and put their faith in him. But in his second coming, in his second coming, he will come as a warrior who will defeat all those who remain resistant to him. Read the picture of Jesus coming as a warrior in the book of Revelation. Read some of the pictures in the book of Revelation of Jesus coming in to smash, to dash into pieces all those who will remain resistant to him. And if you are not yet a Christian, let me ask you, what is keeping you away from turning to this king who is so victorious? To this king who came to conquer a, an enemy that you and I could never conquer. And yet he conquered it through suffering, through being meek, riding into Jerusalem, not on a horse, but on a donkey. He came to bring salvation to you and I so that we would be reconciled with this king before he comes in as a warrior to dash into pieces all those who are resistant against him. Friends, if you're not yet reconciled with King Jesus, reconcile with him today. Receive his salvation so that you would be on his side, not against him. Listen just to one picture of Revelation 6 that will give us a snapshot of what will happen if we remain resistant to this king. Revelation 6, 12-17, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, the full moon, became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Friend, if God is making his king victorious, this is bad news for all those who keep resisting Jesus. This is why we must evangelize. And speak the truth about Jesus to all those who are still resistant to him. But the good news is, this can be reversed by embracing Christ by faith. Now, while this list of victories is a warning to all those who resist Christ, it's great comfort to all those who would embrace him. Just like King Toy chose a path of being reconciled with David, of embracing him, of giving him gifts, of, of adoring him, of recognizing his greatness. You and I can do the same to King Jesus if you or I are outside of Christ. While this is a warning and an invitation, it's also comfort. Comfort for all of us who are in Jesus. That no matter what life will bring our way, no matter how difficult the new year might be, we have a king in whose arms we will be secure. I love the lyrics of the song that we often sing here, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. In Christ, God has given us a king whose arms are everlasting. That was the first part, the longest part of this chapter. The second major truth that we see in this lesson is not only that God gives victories 
to his anointed king. And we've seen the, the four lessons out of those victories. But there's a second part, is that God's king reigns justly over his people. God's king reigns justly over his people. At the end of this chapter, verses 15 particularly, there's this phrase, this summary that just ca captures the way David reigned over his people. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to his people. The word for equity is not equality. The, for word, the Hebrew word for equity here is the Hebrew word that's also translated as righteousness. In other words, David's reign is characterized by two adjectives, adjectives justice and righteousness. In the Bible, justice and righteousness are offered, often paired together. It's this combination, justice and righteousness, that was clearly expected and, and, and spoken of in the, in the wonderful promise in Isaiah 9 about the future king that would come. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there's no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord will bring this about. And in 2 Samuel 8, we see a preview of how God's kingdom, through his anointed king, has these two characteristics of justice and righteousness. Well, friends, today our society wants to call justice by something that is separated from God's righteousness. We want to define justice as, a, as different from what is righteous in the eyes of God. For we often are, we see our society wanting to call justice that which is explicitly opposed to God and his righteousness. But in David, what we see is that justice and righteousness are married together. They're inseparable. They're not identical, but they're inseparable. And David was committed to lead and implement justice and righteousness to his people. The safety of God's people is not merely being secure from the enemies from without, the external enemies, but also being secure from the enemies within, the trap of acting unjustly or unrighteously towards each other. You and I, are not supposed to see ourselves in David's shoes here. He was God's anointed king. We are not. But the values that he instilled over the citizens of his kingdom are values that belong to the citizens of Christ's kingdom as well. To all those who repent and trust in Christ for salvation, we benefit from our King Jesus who administers justice and righteousness to us and he expects and wants us to live in that justice and righteousness ourselves. God revealed his righteousness to us through Jesus Christ when Christ took upon him our punishment, the punishment that we deserved. Christ truly administered God's justice to us. He took it upon himself. Jesus was crucified to be a substitute in our place so that the justice of God would be upheld in the midst of his people, though we are sinners. That's amazing news. And God gave him victory, as we have seen, over death. But we, the people of God, not only benefit from the justice and the righteousness that God's king administers to us, we also are supposed to live that out as well, having been the recipients of that justice and righteousness. So, the Apostle Paul, in Romans, when he spoke about the righteousness of God who has been revealed by faith through Jesus Christ, he also spoke about what, once we embrace Christ by faith, what that looks like for us, the citizens of God's kingdom. At the end of, of the book of Romans, 
Paul says, and he reminds the Christians in Rome, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You see, David here in, in chapter 8, when he administered justice and righteousness, he wanted to make sure that his people live in justice and righteousness. David was not merely interested to make sure that the enemies from without were put at bay and subdued, but also that the enemies from within in the hearts of people who would cause people to live in strife, to fight against each other, to accuse each other, to judge each other, to hurt each other, to act in oppressive ways against each other. David, David's mission was not only to deal with the enemies from without, but to deal with the enemies from within. So he administered justice and righteousness over his people. If we had time to unpack what that looked like, uh, we would go to Psalm 101. If you want to understand what the details of what David's justice and righteousness looked like, we would unpack Psalm 101. Let me just read it quickly to you. We don't have time to unpack it, but I encourage you as, as you go home, meditate on Psalm 101 the entirety of the psalm, because it's a definition of what it looked like for David to administer justice and righteousness. Listen to Psalm 101 as I read it. I will sing of the steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Wow. This is how David administered justice and righteousness in the land. Would you like to live under his reign? When lying and wickedness would not be tolerated but punished? He had no room for allowing injustice and unrighteousness to flounder. And not only in behavior, but even in the heart. Friends, if you belong to God's kingdom... Ask yourself, do these qualities characterize your life, integrity of heart, not allowing your eyes to look at anything that is worthless? Just think about the temptation to fight against pornography or the lure to slander others even secretly or the lure to be arrogant, haughty in the heart, acting in evil ways, speaking lies, simply walking in evil ways. David's reign... David's reign did not tolerate those who acted wickedly. Now you may ask, well, but pastor, David, did David live himself up to these standards consistently? As we will see in the, in the remaining story of 2 Samuel, David's own life had some significant blunders. But as we see here, what the author is giving us is a snapshot of the king who walks in God's ways. 
Just because David didn't walk in God's ways consistently all the time does not mean that this picture of God's anointed king is somehow shadowed or or has a shadow over it. This is a snapshot. This is a a small-scale model of the kind of kingdom that God wants to have over his people, of the kind of king that God wants to have over his people. So, friends... In the final verses of, of verses 16 through 18, the narrator closes with a summary of David's cabinet. This was, this was a way of closing off an official overview of, of this leader's life. What is surprising in this list is that it closes with a comment of David's sons being priests. It's unclear if this is a positive note or a negative note. The narrator, the narrator doesn't tell us that. But what we have here in this picture is a picture of stability and order, of justice and righteousness. David fought against the enemies of God's people on the outside. And David fought to instill God's values among God's people on the inside as well. Here we have a a king whose reign was under the blessing of God. A God who worked through this king to give him victories and through his reign to reign justly and bring justice and righteousness to his people. And the the benefit of all of this is that God's people have security and stability. Oh, friends, as we look at a new year that we're about to enter, let's look at the kingdom that God has promised In this chapter, we see a small-scale model that God's blueprint is working. That God's plans will take shape in this way. And if you are in Christ, you can benefit from the stability and the security of living life under this king. But it's also, we benefit from the responsibility to live a life of justice and righteousness. Because we have been given those through King Jesus. And now he wants us in whatever place of authority, in whatever relationships we have, in whatever roles of of being with others or over others, that in all our dealings with each other, our dealings with one another, our relationships with each other would be characterized by what is just, what is righteous. God's people are secure. Because God makes his king victorious and he reigns justly over his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who accomplishes your covenants, who brings about your promises, who fulfills the plans that you have revealed in your word for us. Father, we praise you for your king, the king that you have brought to us, the king who fought our battles, the king who, who won the victories for us, and we, your people, get to live in the victories that our king has obtained for us. Father, we pray that his righteousness and his justice would be in our hearts, in our minds, in our relationships, in our actions, in our life together as a church so that it would be clear to all that Christ is our King and that your kingdom is coming and has come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.